today. John chapter 5. Let's pray. We'll begin. Dear Heavenly Father, thanks again for this day. And I pray, pray, Lord, you'll open our hearts and our minds to what you have for us, that we can see your plan of grace unfold before us in your word. That you come at us from all different angles and you come to reach people right where they're at in a multitude of ways. And I pray, Lord, that we can help to see our role in your story unfolding during this holiday season. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I'm going to read John chapter 5, verses 1 to 18, and then we will we'll dig in. Verse 1, After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there, now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, an Aramaic called Bethesda. That might sound familiar. Which has five roof colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I am going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse will happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Now, um, we start off with this location, this place, this, the pool of uh, Bethesda, which most of you have probably heard of Bethesda, Maryland, and the great medical facility that's there that takes care of all kinds of military um, veterans and active duty, and it's like the hospital of our commander-in-chief, and like anybody gets sick, they're there. Well, it, it literally means in, Aram in Aramaic and translated to Greek, it's a place of mercy. Hope and mercy is kind of what Bethesda means, and so you have this, this place where people put their hope in. Now, it's, it's a pool, and the mythology of it is that if, if this pool is stirred by the wings of angels, then the next person that gets in the pool will be healed. So everyone, the invalids and paralyzed, they're all hanging out around this place, and when the water, there's a ripple in the water, a movement across the water, then people are like rushing to get in there because they want to be the first one in, and then they're healed and they leave. So that's, that's the the overarching story of this spot. Now, what's really cool geographically is that if we take a look, I messed it up a little bit. We'll do this one first. If we take a look at the area where this happens, um, this is, we don't really know exactly where this place was. What we do know is where the Antonia Fortress, which this is kind of the barracks for the soldiers. They stayed at this part of the town. You have the, they were close to the temple. 
So you kept the soldiers close to the temple in case there was some kind of riot or disruption in the temple. Um, the Jewish people were known to cause some problems when the Romans are telling them what to do. And so the barracks for the soldiers was connected almost directly into the temples, right there. So if there was any disruption amongst the people, an uprising, that's where you put them down. So the soldiers are really close. We know for sure where that was archaeologically. Then you had the sheep's gate, which this gate puts it next to the fortress. Um, other renderings, other ideas are that this gate was actually farther away. Um, and then in between in this area was the pool of Bethesda. And so if you look at a couple other... Oh, sorry, I went backwards. If you look at this rendition, you see where number two, that's where the barracks are. And in number four here in the corner, it puts the pool of Bethesda here and actually puts the sheep gate out beyond this, this wall over here. We don't know exactly where it was. Um, if you, I know some of you have been to Israel. Amber and I have gone. Cole's been. There's stuff built on top of, built on top of, built on top of things. It's kind of tough to, unless you want to tear people's homes down, to archaeologically dig through. And so we don't know exactly where this was located. But what is interesting is that this area where you have the sheep pool, the sheep gate, is not, it's not the royal portico, the royal entrance that royalty would go up. To this day, you can walk up these steps and see the entrances where you walked into the temple in this spot. It's very grand. The city of David was below where like all the royal people were kind of below where the holy, holy site of the temple is. And so for Jesus to enter from the north, not only is it the most direct route, he's coming from Galilee, but he's coming in where the commoners come through. He's not, he's not coming in where the royalty comes through. He's, gonna, he's walking in where the sick and the helpless are. He's not walking in where all the, the pomp and circumstance would happen through the royal gate. He comes to reach the people in the most need. And so if you look at even a little closer look, um, no, nah, sorry, that's not what I wanted. But you can see this colonnade and what they talked about it being over. So it's a pool in the middle, but you have kind of like today what we call it a pergola or something. I don't know what those things are, but you have st stuff to produce shade is overhanging the pool. It's overhanging this area. Um, and that's important because this guy's been here for a long time. And so it's not just that he's thrown out in the street. He's just not laying out by a ditch. This is an area where people brought their sick, hoping that this moment would happen. So Jesus encounters him in this place. He encounters him here where there's invalids, there's blind, lame, paralyzed, and this guy's been there for 38 years. This guy's been laying by this pool, waiting for a moment to be healed longer than Jesus has been in his earthly body. We know Jesus is about 30-ish. And so this guy's been laying around waiting for an angel wing to touch the water so he can hurry up and get in there and be healed. And so when Jesus walks in, he sees this scene. There's all of these people laying around here waiting for this moment, waiting for this, this whisper of wind to hit the water, and then they get in and they're healed. And so they're desperate. He's been desperate for that long to be healed in this place. But Jesus walks in and asks him a question. Do you want to be healed? Which seems to be an idiotic question. Do you, I mean, if we walked into any intensive care unit or a post-surgical ward and said, or even the pre-op, let's walk through the pre-op before they're about to cut on you and do whatever they're going to do and say, would you like to be healed? Is anyone going to go, no? I prefer to have things replaced and joints and sewed on and tubes and nah, that, that sounds more fun to me. 
everyone is going to say, yeah, I want to be healed. Jesus, is, there's a whole section of people all around. And he walks up to this specific person in this specific moment on this specific day for a specific purpose. If Jesus was just there to heal everybody, he would have walked in and said, huh, you're all healed, see ya, and just back out. They all would have all stood up at the same time and things would have been straightened out and working and no more lameness, no more blind, I can see, and he just would have walked away and there would have been a... A holy praise riot would have erupted, I would think. We're all healed. He didn't do that. He went to one person, one specific person, and he interacts with a, this one guy for a reason. He wasn't there just to heal. He was there to start stirring the pot with the religious leaders. So he goes to this one guy and says, would you like to be healed? And he, like one of my... I haven't watched it in a long time. We need to rewatch it. But I used to love the movie... Grumpy Old Men. Um, I really like that movie. And Grumpier Old Men is just as good. He's like a grumpy old man. 38 years lame. We don't know how old he is. We know he's at least 38. Was he lame from birth? Did something happen? I don't know. He's been laying there for a long time. And he responds to Jesus. Because there's probably been multiple people over the years, 38 years of life, saying, what's wrong? Why don't you do this? And we'll get you in there. We can't. And his response is, Sir, I have no one to put me in the pool when the water's stirred up. And while I am going, others step down before me. I just can't catch a break. I'm too lame to get in the water and no one will help me. I can't get in there. Now, I, this week, and maybe I'm, I have a twisted mind. We all know that. But I was thinking, if, if really, if this worked, if people believed in this, couldn't they have created a system in which everyone could be healed? If all it took was when the water is moved... The angel wings, dump them. Couldn't they have like had like, get in line. We'll do this in an orderly fashion. We'll rig up a, a system of pulleys. We'll strap you in and we'll have you. We'll have one person's job to hold the rope. But as soon as it, as soon as it happens, you just let the rope go and they hit the water. Pull them up. They're healed. It'd be like a, a holy dunking tank. Why didn't anyone think of this? If this really worked, then it's like, oh, that one healed. Okay, get them out. Let's wait for it to calm down. Okay, ready? Strap them in. Next. Wait, dunk, healed, gone, they're out. Nothing. No one thought of this? So in it, I think there's a, there's a false hope that's put into this moment. I don't think anybody really believed in their heart of hearts, but they're desperate. There's nothing else is working. There's no medical way for them to be healed. There's, they're, they're at their wit's end, and they want help. And so they're just sitting there hoping and hoping and hoping. And so when Jesus comes and says, do you want to be healed? Of course he does. But he reverts to, I just I can't catch a break. If I could just get in that water, I'd be healed. Jesus then says, get up, take your bed and walk. He put all of his hope in this false idea of the angel wings and all these things. And there's all these people sick around. And he goes up to this one guy. One commentary I read said that because it was 38 years, that's John trying to reference us back to a moment in Deuteronomy and the people of God. It was 38 years of maybe. I get that, but I don't, I don't see any direct correlation. I just think that we're given the facts. This guy's been here for 38 years and Jesus chose him to heal him because of what's about to happen next. He gets up and he walks. And at once, the man's healed, takes up his bed, and walks away. A miracle has happened. 
This guy's been lame for 38 years. He gets up and walks away, picks up his bed, and he walks. What happens next gives us a window into the religious elites and the people of the day. Now that day was the Sabbath. Dun, dun, dun. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to take up my bed and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn, and there was a crowd in the place. This just seems silly. But we have to read it with a, to see the point of what Jesus is doing even later in a moment when he confronts these Jewish leaders. This guy's been lame for 38 years, been laying by this pool, putting his hope in some angel wing stories, and he's now walking. And the first thing people say to him, the first thing the leaders say to him is, hey, 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 drop your yoga mat. You're supposed to carry yoga mats on Sunday. Well, Saturday, so on the Sabbath. No, no yoga on Saturday. He's rolled up this straw mat. It's a, like a modern-day yoga mat, but probably way different. So he's got it all rolled up, and he's carrying his bed. And the leaders go, that's labor. Stop laboring on the Sabbath. D- I'm sure if these people are Sabbath-keeping people, they're at least a place of authority. He doesn't say priest, it doesn't say rabbi, but they are Jews who have authority because we see this, the pot stirring in a few verses later. So we can make the clear assumption that these are at least leaders in the church, leaders in the community. So they know this guy's been laying around for 38 years, lame. And no one bothers to think, dude, you're walking. Praise God. This is amazing. Instead, it's about the rule. They're all about, you're carrying your yoga mat. Stop it. Put it down. Sabbath breaker. In some circles, if the Sabbath violation, the Sabbath breaking violation is great enough, they could move to have you stoned to death for breaking the Sabbath. That you could be, and at the least, exiled from community. There'd be punishment. This guy's been healed He's walking, and all they can think of is, this guy needs to be punished. And so they say, who did this? And he goes, uh, I don't know. Some dude said, do it. I didn't get his name. I'm just healed. You would think there would be an interaction between you and a person who's, this has just happened. I'm healed by God. This is a miracle. I don't care about your rules. Go ahead. Find me. Do something. Then they rat him out. Rat him out. Who did it? Who did it? I don't know. All I know is I got healed, and then a crowd gathered, and he disappeared. I don't know the guy. All they cared about was him following these rules. They didn't stop to see what God had done in this moment. Right there, we could end the story. If, that, if this was kind of the, the pinnacle, like we could have this sermon, we could do this whole thing and say, see, religious leaders are blind to the work of God. We could have this whole story. But that, that would have been the climax of it. Jesus slipped away. Can't catch me. Didn't, I didn't leave my business card. You don't know who I am. Well, that wouldn't have led to the result that Jesus was hoping for with these leaders. So then we see later that day, afterwards, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, now is this a chance encounter or did Jesus go after him? I don't know. 
What I do know is they're in the temple together. For 38 years, this lame man isn't able to go to the temple. He doesn't sacrifice. He's not able to worship. Nothing. He's laying next to this place, a complete invalid. Takes up his mat, his bed, walks away. What's one of the first things he does that day? He goes to the temple to praise God. Now, is this a repentant moment? Is it a praise moment? Is it a little bit of both? Probably. Is it going to sacrifice for his healing to say thank you? Is it a repentant sacrifice? I don't know. All I know is that he is in the temple with Jesus. Jesus sees him and says, see, you're well. Now, sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. A little foreboding maybe? A little bit of, eh? Now, depending upon how you read this, when we see what Jesus did with the the guys that tore the roof off in Mark chapter 2, that man is lowered down on a a sheet. He's lowered down into the room. Jesus heals him, and he says, go and sin no more. Like, your sins have been forgiven. So that guy's paralysis was due to sin, and he's healed. And the murmuring of the crowd is, who is this man that thinks he can heal, he can forgive sins? Here we don't see that. So I don't know if it could be similar. It could be your sins are what paralyzed you for 38 years. Go, sin no more. Or this could be, which I think is what's happening, is this is Jesus saying, you now have legs to walk, but that's not eternity. See you're well, but sin no more. So nothing worse happens. The worst that's going to happen is hell. Like, you need salvation. Yes, your physical healing is important, and I healed you, but what's more important is eternity. What's more important is eternity. And so he has this interaction. They're talking. Then immediately, the man goes away and tells the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. What a rat. Does he not know that snitches get stitches? There had to have been more interaction than just Jesus shows up, you're walking through the crowd. See, you're well. Go. Sin no more. Something worse could happen. And he just keeps walking. I think there had to be some more interaction, if not with Jesus directly, but at least with his disciples, because now he knows the name. How would he have known the name if they just saw passing? I think there's more interaction happening here. And then, but the guy still is focused on the rules. He's terrified of these Jewish leaders. He can't get past that he broke a rule. They're mad at him. He's going to go make it right. So then he runs and tells them, It was Jesus. And that's why they're persecuting him, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them. So there's some exchange happening here around the temple that we don't get all the details about. These leaders, he tells them it was Jesus. They clearly interact with Jesus in this moment because he tells the leaders, my father is working until now, and I am working. He's saying, I'm the son of the living God. I'm God in flesh. So a couple things happening here. These leaders want to get him. He's healing on the Sabbath. He's doing things you're not supposed to. He's breaking the rules. Now, we as Americans, uh, by birthright, are very anti-authoritarian, are we not? And I would argue that's the way we should be. But that's a whole other conversation. It has nothing to do with the Bible. Now, he, there, there's an authority structure here that's become crippling. Where they are putting an authoritarian structure into things that do not point people to God. It's a good gift from God to give us the Sabbath. 
to give us Thanksgiving Day, to give us a random Saturday where we schedule no real work. It doesn't mean you can't cook or do dishes or cut the grass or whatever you're going to do, but a day to reflect and be thankful for what God has given us, what God has provided us, and not labor in our career path, not labor in, our, in the toil of work, but instead a day set aside to be thankful, to enjoy the fruits of what God has given us. That was the point of Sabbath. And these religious leaders turned it into, well, here's the things you can and can't do. We want to make sure you keep the Sabbath, so we're not going to give you all these rules, because we know how you people are. You're going to start breaking the Sabbath left and right, and the only way to be connected to God is to follow it perfectly. And they put this whole list of rules and regulations, hundreds of extra-biblical rules to keep people celebrating. They took the joy out of the Sabbath. They took the joy of Thanksgiving out and made it about all the specific little rules. And this guy, even though he'd been healed, he's encountered Jesus twice now. He still can't break away from, oh, I did something wrong. We don't see him jumping up, up and down in joy. We don't see, like think about, we just got done for, in chapter 4, the Samaritan woman. She encounters Jesus and runs to tell everybody about him. We see the ruler in Capernaum, whose son is ill, on his deathbed, travels to Cana, talks with Jesus and says, my son is ill, please heal him, surrounded by all these people that just want the miracles and stuff from him. And here's a guy with a a heartfelt faith that says, I'm desperate, save my boy. And his response as Jesus heals his son, encounters his messengers on the road, gets home, his entire household believes because of this interaction with Jesus. And here's a grumpy old man who gets healed after 38 years of laying around and he's so crippled by the rules. He's so crippled by, that's what I'm supposed to do, it's how you're supposed to do it. If a miracle happened in my house and some authority structure came by and said, how'd this happen? I know the depths of my own heart. No one's knowing. What are you talking about? Well, we're in charge. You'll be taxed. We'll take this. Take it. My child's been healed. My, imprisoned me, stoned me to death. I don't care. Like, There's been a healing. There's been a miracle. No. I'd like to say I would do that. Faced with the circumstance? I don't know. I tend to be pretty anti-authoritarian. I'm pretty great at seeing the will of... Uh, not of when the will of God is revealed, and this is what God says, and you know, I get all the gospel, but anything else out of that, just leave me alone. But what would I do? I don't know. He rats him out. He's scared. He's terrified. He wants his life back. I don't know. But he rats Jesus out. Those leaders encounter Jesus. How dare you heal on the Sabbath? And then Jesus steps in and says, My father works on the Sabbath every single week. The stars shine, the sun comes up, the moon comes up, water flows, fish swim, air is still here. You don't have to hold your breath for 24 hours on the Sabbath. Your lungs still work, your brain still functions, your heart still beats. So everyone understood that God, even though in in Genesis it says God rested, God doesn't rest. 
that's given to us as an example of our need for a day of rest. God's always working. That was understood amongst the rabbis. God doesn't stop working. So Jesus says, my father is working on the Sabbath until now. My father's always worked on the Sabbath. The earth still spins even on the Sabbath. And I am working. He's saying, I'm the son of God. He's saying, I have authority over the Sabbath, not you. You're just mere image bearers of God. And Jesus is saying, I am God. So the religious structure, the authority that the Jewish leaders have, Jesus is saying, this little old rabbi from up north has authority over everything, not you. And of course, that leads them to want to kill him. This is why the Jews are seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Why, yes, yes, he was. That's exactly what he was doing. And so he picked this guy for a reason. He knew what was going to happen. If he had picked someone else to be healed at that pool, someone else just would have ran home in thankfulness, would have maybe gone and left town, would have went to visit friends on the coast. This guy, he, knew ex- he picked him out of all of those lame people because he knew exactly what was going to happen. I'm going to heal this guy. He's, a, he's going to be encountered. He's going to rat me out. Jesus was stirring the pot on purpose. He could have picked anybody else that would have went to the countryside and spread. Just like he does, we'll read about. He heals other people and says, go and tell no one. And what do they do? They tell everybody. It's very tongue-in-cheek. I don't think Jesus means, hey, 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 I healed you. Keep this between us. Then we read they immediately go and tell everyone. He, he's picking the right people to spread the message in the time that he wanted, in the hour that he wanted. Because we see Jesus, after these interactions, he then goes back into the countryside. This is his initial, well, he cleansed the temple. Then he comes back days, maybe a couple months later, has this interaction. He's, he's slowly stirring this pot. He's giving people and his disciples windows into miracles, but he's also pointing out to the religious people, and he's poking them in the eye. That will eventually culminate to a great crowd of believers and a great crowd of people that want him dead. And the culmination of faith and faithlessness collides at the cross and ushers in our hope and our salvation. So a couple thoughts. We see that clearly Jesus is on a mission of grace in this moment. There's a, this isn't just happenstance. And I know sometimes we read the Bible that way, that just happened, it came upon, this thing. Jesus clearly is on a mission. And he's on a mission to heal people physically. We see that over and over and over, but that's not his entire mission. Yes, he's going to heal people physically, but it's always for a purpose. So even today, we, could, we can take what we see in the examples of healing in the scriptures, we can bring that into today. Some people are healed. Some people are healed in miraculous ways. Some people are healed through medicine. Some people are healed through all of this stuff. And it's not just because he wants to heal you. It's so that then the story of the healing goes out. It goes out to everyone that you know. It goes out to the people you love, the people closest to you. And you give credit where credit is due to the one who's healed you. 
If he heals through medicine, yes, great heart surgeons, great people in medicine, great pharmaceuticals, all that stuff. But if you allow that to roll to where it should be rolled, God gave that doctor, that nurse, that, that pharmacist, that scientist, gave them the skill, gave them the intelligence, gave them the know-how, gave them the capital, the funding, the, for all of this to happen. That all comes from God. And the minute you start taking steps back and go, I'm pretty smart. I'm pretty cool at this. And yes, you are smart. Yes, you are pretty cool at that. But you have to give credit. Thank you, God, for giving me the aptitude for doing this. Because you don't just sit around. I don't know a single professional that's making life and death decisions that just sits there and holds the scalpel or holds the needle and goes, okay, Lord, I'll move when I feel it's time. I'm just going to sit here, Lord. I'm waiting for you to speak. I'm ready for you to write something on the wall for music, for an angel wing, something. No one does that. You go in with the confidence that God has given you the skill and you use the skills he's given you. And it's in the heart of the person that takes 10 steps back and says, thank you, Lord. Thank you for giving me this ability. I'm going to use it. I'm going to wield it wisely. I'm going to help people. I'm going to do great things, but I will always give you the credit. And Jesus is here to heal these people so that that happens. He's healing. He will heal us physically, but it's not, it's never just because he wants to. Yes, he loves you. Yes, he wants you to find healing. Yes, we pray for that. Yes, within minutes of shooting some emails, there were at least 20 to 30 people between the prayer list and the elders who were praying for my cousin. That's just if they check their email. I got emails in the next couple days that people don't check their emails all the time. Me? Praying for your cousin. Praying for him. I send out a report. Praise God. This is So, yes, we pray for those things and he provides those things. But if that story stopped... And we didn't share that. If my family stops and goes, man, Mike had the people in Wyoming are praying, that's awesome. And they never roll that into a growth of their faith. That's not why Jesus does that. It's not why we're healed by God. It's for us to grow closer to him. And it's for us to grow closer to the people around us that we can share our faith. So Jesus came in a very miraculous way to heal them of their physical ailments. He also came to heal people of their, their spiritual lack of knowledge, their, their lack of faith. That's why he tells the guy, you've been healed, don't do bad things. Worse can come. There's an eternity separated from God that is way worse than laying next to a pool for 38 years. Dying is an invalid is not as bad as being eternally separated from God. So Jesus came to heal people from that idea that life is short, life is great, I'm going to live my life. We'll talk about the Sadducees and the Pharisees later. We talk a lot about the Pharisees as Jewish leaders that are very rule-following, Torah-keeping people. we got to talk about the Sadducees too, which is a group of Jews that felt like when you died, that was it. There's nothing afterwards. So they live life to the fullest now. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. That's how they live their lives. There was no afterlife. We can't be people like that. We have to help others that we know and love that there's more than just this life. That's a spiritual death when all you do is live for this. And we have to help people. And Jesus came to heal people from those ideas. 
I'm just going to live my life, do my thing. Doesn't matter. Holiness doesn't matter. Faith in Christ doesn't matter. I'm just going to do whatever I want because I only get one life and I'm going to live it. No, there's an eternity. And it matters what happens here. Yes, grace is a free gift. Yes, there's no payment that we have to give God. There's nothing that we owe Him. He wants our humble submission to Him. And that is it. But it matters how we live here. And we have the ability to help others to see that truth. And lastly, he came to heal people from their bad theology. He came to heal these Jewish leaders of their bad theology. God set up the Old Testament as a diagnostic tool, as a way for us to see that we can't do this on our own. We need a Messiah. And in the 400 years of silence before Jesus comes on the scene, they make up all these extra rules. We know that the great commandment, love God and love your neighbor, right? You boil down the Ten Commandments to the great commandment, love God and love your neighbor, is just a mirror image of Deuteronomy 6, the Shema. Put no other gods before me. And you keep reading in Deuteronomy, like nothing changed. Jesus just reiterated what was said in the Old Testament that God the Father had said before. No other gods and love all people as you want to be loved. Love your neighbor as yourself. He reiterated it. He didn't make up something new. We, we have the great joy and the opportunity to help cure people of their bad theology. Sometimes we get too wrapped up and too deep in the weeds over the minutia of things. I'm not saying that, I mean, that's fun for me. I enjoy that. Let's study this and read this and what's this. But in the grand scheme of life and people's salvation, so many people will grab a hold of one sin that's clearly sin in the Bible and they'll make that their, their mantra. We got to fight. This is the greatest sin ever. We got to go for it. It's this one. This is the one we have to fight against. This is the one we have to do protest signs about. And the ones we got to worry the most about. This is the one. This is the one. This is the one. It's like they haven't even read the Sermon on the Mount. They haven't even encountered what Jesus said. So it's not just good enough to you know, say, well, I never, I never cheated on my spouse. What about the lust that's in your heart? It's not good to say, well, I, just, I never murdered anybody. Yeah, but every time you see them, you wish them dead. Like in your heart, you wish them to be gone. Well, then you have a heart issue. Just because you didn't pull the trigger or wield the knife... You have a broken heart that wants people's ill will. That's not okay. And you go on through the list, all through the whole Sermon on the Mount. He's consistently saying this isn't just about behavior modification and clamping down. It's about your heart. You need to have a transformed heart. And if we can help inject that into our family and friends who are devout, they're, they're full of faith, but they're so worried about the authority and the and just the iron fist of the scripture, and they forget the compassion that God had. They forget how Jesus encountered the woman at the well. Like that, you need to keep those stories in scripture at the forefront of your mind. How did Jesus deal with a woman who had multiple husbands and was now living with a guy? He talked to her as an equal. He didn't condone her behavior. He showed her the error of her ways. He knew the depths of her heart. He treated her with compassion and kindness. 
He stood firm on the truth, but he did it with a love that couldn't be denied. And her heart was transformed. You could be theologically correct. You could know the Bible up and down and left and right, and you're 100% correct that that is sin and that is an abomination to God. But your approach to the person in the midst of that does not show them grace and kindness and help them to see that God wants better for them. You're just pushing them farther away. And so Jesus, in this small 18 verses, takes care of a physical healing, a spiritual healing, and he starts going after some theological healing that's not going to go well. And the ones that are the most, the ones that push back the most are the ones that feel that they are the authority. That they have it all figured out. So where do you land on that spectrum? Are you in need of physical healing? Maybe mental healing can roll into this too with the anxiety that seems to rise in our community? Are you the person that's way gone spiritually? That you need to see the truth of God because your eternity right now is not certain in heaven. Are you the religious elite? Been walking with God for a while and you hold your faith with an iron fist to the people around you. If they, they just need to turn or burn. Where do you fall on that spectrum? And then I'll challenge you this week to look for some people on all places on that spectrum. There are people in our midst and in your lives and people you know that are hurting physically. Ailments, disease, cancer, long-term treatment, short-term, COVID, whatever it is, how can you help them in that? How can you open up yourself to taking a meal, making a phone call, offering to babysit, doing something physical around the house to help them with things? Like, how can you enter into people's physical pain and bring them some relief? Now, I'm not saying go home and compound some new drug, and I'm not saying that. But how can you bring some help to someone who's in, in medical distress? Or maybe it's mental distress, that they're really struggling. How can you bring some relief to them? And then think about spiritual authority. Like, who in your life or who around you, that if you're honest, if they died tonight, you aren't sure that you would see them in heaven with you? Maybe that's you. Maybe that's someone sitting here that you're not sure where you're at in your faith, and then there's people around you that love you and want to help you understand that. But maybe there's someone outside of this building that you know that's a co-worker, someone you're near, someone you're around that is so far from God. And you're worried about them. You're scared for them. Then pray for the Spirit to during this season between Thanksgiving and, and Christmas, there's lots of hope, there's lots of joy, there's lots of things to be thankful for, that maybe something in these next few weeks will be the, the thing that opens the door to that conversation. Hey, listen, everybody's pretty nervous about what's happening with this virus, and I'm not sure what's going to happen. I don't know what's going on. And I, 
I love you, or I care for you, or we're great friends, and man, I'm just worried about forever. Have you ever thought about that? Like, don't do the whole, you know, I'm just really worried about you because I'm afraid you're going to have a bad time for eternity. Like, don't do that to people. If you love them, if you have compassion for them, then you can find ways to say, like, I've just been thinking a lot during this season of, about hope and about eternity. Have, have you ever thought about that stuff? Do you think there's something after this? And just let the conversation happen. Don't have an agenda. They're not your project. Just have a good conversation and sprinkle lots of hope. Well, this is what I think. I don't have it all figured out, but it seems like this makes the most sense. This is the most hopeful. This is where I've landed. Yeah, I've checked out other religions. I've checked out other stuff, and none of them really terminate in, in hope and joy for eternity. So that's where I land. What about you? And just let the conversation happen. One of the great things I love about Wyoming is I feel like we still have friendly discourse with people we don't necessarily agree with. I think, there's, I've got, I think there's people in other parts of the country don't have that. They just get shut out. But I know in this church, we all land on all kinds of different places, politically, socioeconomically, even some theological things that we don't always line up on. But we're all still friends. We can have that dialogue. And so you should be able to have that with the people in your life. I love you. I've been thinking about this. Can we, what do you think? And then we have the theologically backward that need saved, need help. That are so focused on a singular sin or a singular issue and they can't see past that one issue and have a compassion for the person sitting right in front of them. And that person, this person could be 100% right theologically. This is sin. This is not okay, and this is an abomination to God. Yes, you're correct, but you saying those words to that person does nothing to help them see the hope in Christ. So how about you back off your picket sign, and let's have some coffee instead. Maybe inject in when they're, when they're going off, because I have a habit when I go home over the holidays to Indiana that I have the unique ability to pull the pen on some kind of political or theological grenade and just kind of roll it into the room. And it's kind of fun for me. <laughs> Especially when it comes to my mom and dad, who've been divorced for 30 years, but we get together for holiday things. And if I say the wrong thing, it's like, oh, you guys haven't lived in the same house for 30 years. You can still get at each other. And sometimes it's fun. And then sometimes my wife, my sister-in-law look at me and go, why are you doing that? Would you stop? Don't inject the grenade. Don't be like Mike. But perhaps you can step into that person that you love dearly. And they're not wrong theologically, but their approach is horrific. And say, hey, how about instead of leading with you're always right, how about we just accept you are right, but you need a better approach. That person's never going to see that you're right. They're never going to see what the Word of God says because you have done nothing but tear them down. How about love them? Jesus was the most harsh with those kinds of religious people. It drove him the most nuts 
the people that were so locked in that this is the only way that God would work. He was so furious with them. Not because they were wrong theologically, but because their approach became a barrier. Their rightness, their truth became an idol. They worshipped that they were right instead of worshipping the one who showed them they were right. And they were so worried about their authority being right, they missed that there were all kinds of people they were passing over and pushing away out of their correctness. So who in your life hit those three areas? Who's someone that's hurting physically that just needs a care basket, a phone call, a FaceTime, just an encouragement? That they know that there's someone out there that cares for them. And you might not be able to do anything for them other than just talk via whatever form you can make happen. Who out there is, so, is pretty far from God that you're really worried about their eternity? And they need you to help them see that heaven and hell are real and it matters. And ask for the Spirit to show you how to have that conversation. And don't do it with love. Do it with lots of love. And then who, maybe it's you or maybe it's someone you know that's so stuck that they're right all the time. They've almost, they've almost become the person when they walk into that family holiday party, people go, uh-oh. He's here. She's here. She's always right. Who's that person that you could maybe take aside like before? If you get that person that comes to Christmas, comes to Thanksgiving, comes to the, the holiday party. I know it's subjective. These, those are even happening this year. But you have all of the, who's the person that when they show up, you just expect there to be a blow up? How could you maybe go ahead a week before that party and go, hey, you remember last year things got a little heated? How about this year we do it a little different? How about I give you this signal? When you're taking it a little too far, can we have a pack together? Okay, okay. And make them a partner in this. Like if, you, if you're all friends and you have this, your coworker, someone you're together, with, you're like, I, I really want that person to know the Lord. Then you approach them and say, listen, we both want the same goal. We love XYZ person. We want them to have a faith in Christ. But I think the direct approach hasn't worked over the last 10 years. How about we try something new? Let's show them a little bit of love. Okay. Or maybe that person just needs you to show them a compassionate way. Yeah, you're right, but man, you have lots of truth, but you don't have any joy. How about some joy? And pray for God to reveal some people like that in your life over the next couple weeks leading into Christmas. This is one of my favorite times of year between Thanksgiving and Christmas. Not just because I like to eat lots of good food, but people are ripe for this conversation. And I think this year, if the people of God can consistently show that they have hope in God, in spite of what all we see on TV... I think we can see maybe not a great awakening like the early 1900s, but we can see a resurgence of faith in the people that are around us. Because nothing else is panning out. Distancing, masking, none of it has become the end-all, be-all cure. It's all just working. Because if it was, we wouldn't have any, it wouldn't be here. It'd be gone already. 
So it's still here. And people are finding that that hope can't be found in all of these practices. and They're helpful, but that you can't put your hope there. And we have a unique opportunity to show them that our hope is in Christ and Christ alone. Those are your marching orders. Pray for God to reveal those people to you. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you again for this day. Thank you for this time that we've had um, in your house to worship and to open up your word. And I pray that you will help us to see these people that are in our lives that need you desperately because they are far from you and they need you for salvation. Help those people to be revealed to us and help us to have the words from your spirit in that moment to share. We need you to guide us and lead us. And we pray for your spirit to go before us in every one of these conversations, to soften hearts, and to reveal yourself to them. I pray, Lord, that we as a church and we as a community here in Laramie would see more and more people come to know you because we would help share the hope that we found in you. Help us to be a movement of people sharing the hope we found in Jesus with our entire community. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.